0: Okay, are we good on the recording? Test one, two. Sounds good. Okay. Okay, go ahead. go ahead. How do people see monitoring and evaluation in one word? Not again. Challenging.
1: Burdensome or burden.
0: Burden. But I think that that's starting to change. What could monitoring and evaluation be? Um, um, an opportunity. Opportunity. I like that. An opportunity for improvement. What would you say? See, I think for me, there might be a lot to learn but that once you, once you do, you can see how useful it is. I want to make data fun.
1: You're listening to the Monitoring and Evaluation Technical Assistance,
0: or META, podcast.
1: Improving the collection, management, analysis, and use of data
0: to improve outcomes for refugees in the US. Brought to you from the International Rescue Committee with the support of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. META. Welcome to another episode of the META podcast. My name is Jamie Costigan. I am the Monitoring and Evaluation Technical Advisor for the Monitoring and Evaluation Technical Assistance Project, or META. Today we are joined by Kathra Movahedi, a Technical Advisor for Economic Empowerment Programs at the International Rescue Committee. We will be talking today about the findings of a recent IRC study on the financial capabilities of new Americans. The study draws on data from more than 2,400 refugee households and program performance monitoring data from IRC economic empowerment programs from around a dozen U.S. cities. The report on this study is titled Financial Capabilities for New Americans, Lessons Learned from Early Interventions with Refugees. It was released in May of 2017, and we'll share a link to it on the Meta website after the podcast. Kastra, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Kastra, can you first start off by telling us a bit about why you did this study? What questions were you hoping to answer through this research and why these questions are important?
1: Sure thing. So the study itself actually has three main parts. The first is kind of a review of refugee financial situations in the early years. The second part is a study of outcome data connected to the programs or in, in financial capability that we've been implementing with new arrivals. And then the third is really looking at kind of um, some best practices, tactical approaches on implementing financial capability for new Americans. And so it's not purely a research study, but one that was. Sectioned off into these three helpful parts that in some ways could stand alone but work really well together, targeted mostly to service providers looking to understand the situations of refugees when they first arrive and hopefully to be able to identify some things that um, they may be able to use or build upon to help clients to more quickly achieve upward economic mobility. Another key topic that we focused on in the paper is looking at financial coaching. This has kind of emerged as a best practice in kind of the mainstream economic empowerment world. And one of the things that we were curious about and wanted to uh, test is to see how well it works applying this kind of coaching model to refugees and and to newcomers. And so there's a lot of information about the lessons learned and the impacts of that approach.
0: This is so interesting. And and I vouch that the report is is a great resource um, for anyone. So I encourage everyone listening to definitely read it after this podcast. Um, What data did you look at in order to answer these research questions? And how did you go about collecting it?
1: We started with kind of family budget assessments that are first completed by RMP caseworkers, and then as, as clients transition into employment, there's usually a secondary budget touchpoint that we capture. And then through our financial capability programs, we were able to continue to update these these budgets over time as clients participated in various workforce programs or uh, were, were working with us on building their credit or you know managing their finances. Specifically, the key indicators were gross income, net income the percentage of income that is wage-based, right, as opposed to um, public benefits, net worth, and credit score. And then we took that set of data and applied a, a series of, of different filters. The primary cut that we did was the number of coaching sessions that, uh, that a client had received, but then we also did cuts by length of time in the U.S., gender, and access to financial products. So every RNP program in the country is, is collecting refugee budget information, but we were fortunate enough to be able to get that into the form of data and then to expand the timeframe to be able to give us some greater insights into, into the, the financial lives in the early years of, of new arrivals.
0: So that's a great transition. What are the findings of this study? What did you see about the average refugee household, particularly in this few months post-arrival?
1: Well, you know, nothing that was terribly surprising, but it's, it's really good to have some more granular information and, and data on this. So what we found is that the family budgets are extremely tight. Um, it is not uncommon for someone's kind of monthly household budget to have maybe $5 of expendable income. And that's, that's really important, right? Because while maybe you can pay for your basic expenses, one small unexpected cost, like a cell phone charger, and you're over budget. There's also little resilience. So families typically, not only do they not have savings, but they actually have negative net worth. Part of that is the IOM uh, loan, but then there's you know, other debt that can pile on. Because of these factors, they're, they're prone to shocks. And if you consider that clients start out without a credit history and without savings and with tight budgets... All three of those factors then create a situation where one meaningful, expensive, uh, and unexpected expense can wreak havoc on a, on a family's um, budget. Uh, from the income perspective, we also saw the early months are, are very much characterized by volatility. Clients are transitioning into and off of various cash aid programs, as well as starting employment. And so there's just a lot of change within those those first few months and that you know, again, not terribly surprising, but having the numbers helped us to, you know, understand it a bit better.
0: What would you say are the implications of those findings for service providers and policymakers?
1: Well, I think that helping clients to quickly establish some level of financial resilience, um, and there's, you know, probably Many different ways that that one could broach this from a programmatic standpoint, and if nothing else, at least training and focusing on financial education and financial capability, honing in on the importance of credit early on is is also critical. Uh, We unfortunately see so many clients who make some very simple and avoidable mistakes in their first few months or year in the country that ends up as a derogatory information on their credit report. And stays there for seven years. And so, you know, it's heartbreaking when a simple mistake like not filing a change of address form when you move and so you didn't get that, you know, cable bill uh, ends up negatively impacting your credit score six years from now. And, you know, maybe you can't get a mortgage or if you do, you're going to pay more for it because you have a ding on your credit. So I think that the data very clearly communicated to us that early intervention is a good investment.
0: You mentioned that all organizations are collecting a lot of this standard data that you used for this analysis, but not all organizations have the staff or the time or the resources to be able to to really engage in this rigorous uh, analysis of their data. What would you say are a couple of things that organizations that have very few resources might do with that program data to better understand the financial capabilities of their clients and be able to use that data to improve the outcomes of their financial capability services?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the first thing that I've learned in dealing with data and especially in trying to have multiple people kind of move in unison under one set of, of protocols and understanding of what goes in which field is to keep it simple. And especially in a situation where you have limited resources, really think long and hard about what are, what are really those core things that are most meaningful to us? What is the most straightforward way that we can ask these questions, that we can explain this information such that we're consistently getting accurate data entry? The other piece, and this is really easy to overlook, is, is conducting regular quality assurance so looking at your data, ensuring that the the quality is where it needs to be, there needs to be some level of accountability for staff to enter their data in a timely fashion and, and correctly. And it just, you know, my experience has been that 100% of the time, if there is very little quality assurance to no quality assurance, our, our data quality will plummet. And of course, then the worst thing that can happen is you people spend time to enter a bunch of data, but... It is entered in such a way that it's not usable, and nobody wants that outcome. Lastly, once you start to compile data, think about the different things that you might want to disaggregate it by that could be really useful to you as the service provider or to an external audience that may have interest. So, some of the things that we really typically tend to hone in are, are you know, that are that are interesting internally and externally, are our country of origin, date of arrival, education level, and gender.
0: Now, in this study, you examine what you refer to in the report as a suite of three fundamental financial capability services to address the unique situation of New Americans. Can you tell us briefly about these services and what you learned about them through the study?
1: Sure. The way that we segmented the three services within financial capability, it starts with financial education. So that's your traditional classroom-based training on budgeting, banking, credit, and taxes. It's important to give people facts, especially newcomers, and especially when there's a lot of misinformation amongst both mainstream and immigrant populations on a lot of these topics. Uh, The second pillar is financial coaching and counseling. And this is a one on one service with counseling being more of a transactional service where you're really just helping clients with whatever they present with that has to do with money. So that could be walking in with um, a plastic bag with mail that they don't understand and, and helping them go through it to writing um, to writing letters to dispute information incorrect information on a credit report. Eventually, what we what we are trying to do is is move clients to the point where we can have a a relationship with them that is more of a of a coaching type of a of a setup wherein the client is articulating their goals and coming up with steps that they may be able to take to achieve those goals. And our staff become more of uh, a guide and, and someone to help hold them accountable and then you know provide resources as, as needed. Um, the last pillar is financial products. So these are things like credit builder loans or auto loans uh, that can be delivered internally by by IRC or externally through banks or other non or CDFIs that, that provide financial products. But it is something that is a critical part of the of the program. So that's kind of how we define it. Those are the, the three core pillars of financial capability. And in a, in a nutshell, what we've seen is that it is indeed effective. And there's been a lot of research done over the, the past few years, especially on coaching on financial capability programming. And a, and a lot of it is pointing to the right direction in terms of client outcomes. And we feel like we have been able to do our small part to kind of add to that body of knowledge in affirming that that indeed, even for, for new arrivals, you can relatively quickly move things towards a coaching relationship in, in some instances, and that that integration and early intervention of this suite of services is effective.
0: And what would you say that these findings mean for future economic programs, um, whether they're implemented by the IRC or by other service providers? You mentioned, you know, that you feel like you've, that the study has added to the body of, of evidence. So how, how do you see people applying it?
1: Well, hopefully um, some would be able to use this information to apply to local foundations or other um, supporters to try and Bring more capacity to their organizations to deliver financial capability programming. Um, I think it's also important for you know, stakeholders like ORR and, and PRM to, to be aware of these and some of those that, that have kind of some decision making power over you know, where some discretionary funds are spent that we're beginning to be able to bring some, some quantitative um, lens to the impacts of this sector. The other piece, ultimately, is it, it just helps to underscore the the return on investment on financial capability programming. That you know, a, a modest investment of time and service delivery early on for refugees can really make a, a lasting impact. And our our data looked at clients to about the, the first year and a half to two years that they're in the country. And so you know, through that lens, that longer term lens, a lot of these outcomes may not present themselves immediately, but what we're seeing is that it, it is a very worthwhile investment. And so hopefully we see more and more refugees have access to tailored financial capability programs just as part of their you know, resettlement experience.
0: Great. Thanks. And I just want to uh, make sure that I, that I understand correctly. This was a descriptive study of outcomes looking at ongoing program data. Um, it wasn't a randomized control trial, right? Correct. Um, so final question. What are the next steps that you think we should pursue for research? What would you say is like the top research priority related to economic programs and outcomes for new Americans?
1: One of the things that that we would welcome and that we're trying to uh, do our part in is just more more evidence, more research on interventions and project designs that work for refugees and for our clients. There is a there is not a lot of studies out there that look at you know specific interventions to help achieve economic mobility. The other thing that was really clear, and this is more zooming into our, our own work, is what we found in the study is that there are still, very significant unmet needs for uh, a lot of the the women that we serve. We need to focus more on gender-based programming. Uh, we found that the percentage of uh, women that access financial coaching and capability services was well below that of men. Um, and we, you know, we have some initial ideas why, but that's certainly something that we want to start to try and pilot and program for to overcome kind of some of the barriers to access the services. On the bright side, what we did see is that when women did connect with financial coaching and financial capability programming, that we saw their key indicators trending in the right direction as well, that net income, net worth, credit score, all of those things over time started to improve. So we think that we have relevant services, but the challenge seems to be reaching women and, and overcoming perhaps some of those, those barriers. Um, finally, there is a, there's a lot of national evidence around financial coaching. And for us in the refugee world and starting with kind of new arrivals, we really have to start with, with counseling. Um, And I think that they're two distinct approaches, but there's often a lot of overlap and you might have these experiences where a person is getting both counseling and coaching in the same session. What we've started to do now is to do a follow-up to try and get more granular data on the nature of those client contacts that we're capturing to understand whether it was predominantly coaching, predominantly counseling, or a 50-50 mix of both to uh, just try to better understand the the specifics and the, the granular detail of coaching and counseling and the impacts that they have.
0: Kasar, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, This has been really informative. And and as I said earlier, the report is really excellent. And I encourage everyone listening to, to take the time to look at it. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Again, thanks to you and thanks to our listeners for joining. Listeners, let us know what you think of the Meta podcast. If there are other topics you want to hear about, we want to hear about it. Email meta at rescue.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at usmetasupport. For past podcasts and other monitoring and evaluation related resources, you can visit our website, metasupport.org. And we will post this uh, study on the website there as well. Castro, thanks again.
1: Thank you very much.